Hey everyone, welcome to Sunday. My God, the we gosh, the weekend went really fast, didn't it? Can't believe it. Can't believe it. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm going to be reading. Today is our day to read, where we sit back and relax, and maybe have some munchies, and just just listen to me read this book. Um, it's written by Rebecca F. Pittman. It's about the Salem witch trials, and uh, we've been reading it the last twelve Sundays, and this will probably be, I think, our twelfth or thirteenth read. I think it's give or take. Anyway, I'm glad to be here, and I hope you're glad to be here, too. And like I said, you don't have to necessarily sit here and watch me read the book. You can uh, just listen to my voice as I read it and uh, laugh at me because, uh, you know, like I uh, I have in the description for this book, uh, it's written in old-timey English. So I do have issues with pronouncing words and reading the words sometimes, so uh, you can laugh with me over it. And it does get confusing with the titles and different things that they were doing when they were taking notes. But the book is by Rebecca F. Pittman, and we do have permission from her to read it. And so, um, yeah, so if you're watching from Facebook uh, and you, you like what you hear, please be sure to hit that like button. And if you haven't done so already, please be sure to follow. If you are watching from YouTube, there's that little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner. Click on him, and he will take you to our subscribe button. And if you haven't subscribed already, please do so. We have, a, we have more than 520 videos sitting over on YouTube, all different topics. Okay, and if you do like the video when you're watching from YouTube, please be sure to do that. You can also find me on Instagram at GhostyGal, and it's all lowercase. You can find us at Twitter at CalHaunts, and you can find us at you at uh, YouTube, of course, on our YouTube page, youtube.com forward slash ampersand California Haunts Radio. And you can find us over at TikTok at California Haunts, all lowercase as well. Okay, so here we go, and uh, let me get into reading this. Let me get this thing powered up. My tablet is old, but... Uh, I'll read for about an hour, and then you guys can go back and do what you were doing, right? So let me get this open. It takes it a minute here. It's an interesting book, and I, I can honestly say it's it's a. Let me make sure I got the sound working here. It's actually a very interesting book in that. Um, let me do this. Make sure I'm in the right spot here. Make sure I got my audio working. There we go. Uh, in that there's been a lot of weird things happening with it. Make sure that's on. Yep. Okay. Um, there's been a, the, the, the trials are going on. There's been, uh, I, I think, one execution, if not more executions. There's been a couple of guys that have like been on the jury or, or founding juries of these trials, and they backed out because they feel that they're unfair, you know, that the witness testimony is bogus and so they've been backing out and stuff like that so it's been an interesting read and it's getting deeper into it because they're bringing more of course you know there were a lot of people killed uh, you know executed during this time as witches and so we're at the point where they're bringing more people in so okay and like i said please excuse my reading of this because it is in old english and i do have issues with it so it kind of makes for a comical thing okay here we go chapter 29 Quote, if it was the last moment I was to live, unquote. The return of several ministers may have ended in, in ambiguity. That's another word, see? May have, may have ended in ambiguity. But the tide had definitely turned within the conscious thoughts of those feeling the weight of the trial's outcomes. Reverend Samuel Willard had come from behind the cloak of hidden meanings and declared boldly in church, through consecutive sermons throughout June, exactly what his thoughts were pertaining to the trials. He lectured that Satan's 
that Satan's subtlety, I don't know why I have trouble with some of these words, that Satan's subtlety could deceive. Quote, don't, dis- don't believe the devil, he admonished. If it were possible, he would deceive the very elect. Judge Sewell, seated in the congregation, may have squirmed at this declaration. His sermon went on to point out that the devil was particularly interested in bringing down the righteous, and thus the churches of Massachusetts have been targeted. Satan exhibited a peculiar rage against the children of God, and he improves every opportunity against them. Where the gospel comes, here he raises all his powers and does his utmost to oppose. End quote. Reverend Willard warmed to his subject and warmed to his subject and recited biblical passages that flew directly in the face of the judicial system, especially the policy being used by Judge Stoughton. With the conviction of a man on a mission to upset the witchcraft proceedings, he put it all on the pulpit. Quote, the devil may represent an innocent, nay, a godly person, doing a bad act. Act. A-C-K-T. That's what I'm telling you I'm facing. It calls us to self-examination, self-abasing, he said. Hearkening back to the Puritan code of look to thyself first for blemish in thy conduct. The Bible, he said, made it clear that the devil can do this upon divine per- can do this upon divine permission and will do it with without he prevented by God, end quote. Satan could take, quote, on the image of any man representing it, end quote. And then he delivered the blow that should have sent the magistrates back to their privy chambers to consider just what they were doing. Satan, in quotes, can persuade, can, C-A-N-E, that's what I'm saying, persuade, P-E-R-S-W-A-D-E. Right? Satan can persuade the person afflicted that it is done by the person thus represented. End quote. In essence, Willard, without equivocation, stated that Satan didn't even need witches to carry out his evil plans. He could come in the shape of any person he chose, innocent or not, and afflict someone. Although he didn't directly quote from the book of Job, he could have used that poignant story to underscore the fact that God had in the past allowed the devil to afflict the righteous person for his own reasons. He closed by trying to assure the congregation that God was still with them, even in these dark and unaccountable times. Boston minister, Reverend William Milborn, who had been scolded and fined for his words of warning, had focused upon the passages of the return of several ministers that warned of judging people of heretofore impeccable reputations. There were several persons of good fame and of unspotted reputation, he declared, in his petition to the magistrates. Undoubtedly, he was speaking of Reverend George Burroughs, John Alden, John Floyd, Rebecca Nurse, Mary Etsy, and Sarah Cloyce, among others. He once again attacked the charges seen only by the afflicted girls. Quote, bear spectral testimony against, quote, many whereof we cannot put in charity judged to be innocent. If said spectre testimony passed for evidence, we have great grounds to fear that the innocent will be condemned, end quote. The man at the pulpit in Salem Village was trying to deliver messages of hope as well to a congregation that had been divided toward their support of him from the beginning. The trials had done nothing to garner their goodwill. Reverend Paris offered words of encouragement, stating God was the God of comfort, who comforted us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in my affliction, any affliction. To the ears of those whose relatives and friends were in prison and fearful for their lives, Paris's definition of affliction may have been in question. 
Did he mean that the afflicted girls, of which his niece and daughter were included? Or did he mean the afflictions of the poor souls crammed into stone prisons? To many, his bias and affiliation was clear. <clears throat> Sarah Good goes to trial. It had been almost a month since the trials of June 3rd. In the interim, admissions from clergymen, petitions from the friends and family of the accused had been presented to the magistrates, and several people had come forward to show their own evidence that the afflicted persons were faking their torments. Yet, as the court of Oyer and Terminer convened again on June 28, 1692, there was no discernible difference in the structure of the trial or the weight given to spectral evidence. Sarah Good has sat in prison awaiting her fate since March 1st. For almost three months, she had felt the seasons change from the bone-chilling cold of spring to the damp heat of summer. She had gone through the pain of childbirth within the dirty walls of Boston's prison, only to watch the child die from lack of nutrition and hygiene. Her young daughter, Dorcas, had finally been brought to her in Boston on April 12th. Dorcas had only confessed to witchcraft, but it implicated... I'm sorry, Dorcas had not only confessed to witchcraft, but it implicated her mother, Sarah, as the one who had supplied her with familiars. Summons were sent out for primary people who would testify against Sarah Good. Summons for witnesses. June 27, 1692. <laughs> okay. Okay. William and Mary. By the grace of W.M. and Mary, W. with apostrophe M. and Mary, by the grace of God of England, Scotland, France, and Ireland, King and Queen, defenders of the faith, to Samuel Abbey and his wife, Joseph, and his wife, Joseph Herrick, and his wife, Goodwife Fibber, Abigail Williams, Elizabeth Hubbard, Mary Wolcott, Ann Putman, Mercy Lewis, Samuel Braybrook, we command you. And every, and every of you, all excuses set apart to appear at the special court of Oyer and Terminer to be held to be held at Salem for the county of Essex on the 28th of this instant month at nine, nine, of the, 9 of the clock in the morning, there to testify the truth to the best of your knowledge on several indictments then and there to be exhibited against Sarah Good for sundry acts of witchcrafts by her committed and done here, hereof make return fail not dated in salem june 27 1692 asterisk step seawall clerk to the constables of salem or any of them greeting that date i'm saying greeting dat i'm gonna say date 28 june 1692 i have warned the parsons above named according to tenor of this summons by me john putnam constable of salem reverse subpoena versus sarah good I don't think it's reverse. I'm sorry. I think it's reference. But it says reverse. Sarah Good's trial was held in the Salem townhouse, where Bridget Bishop had heard her final conviction. It was 9 o'clock on June 28, 1692, as the ragged woman stood before the stoic faces of five magistrates and the gaggle of jurymen, she must have realized she was in enemy territory. Who would stand for her? Her entire life had been one of hopelessness and men deserting her, either figuratively or literally. Now her very life would be decided by these men who were rifling through parchment papers, filled with accusations from the afflicted seated to her right. She waited, tension mounting in the courtroom, 
This was a much larger meeting room than that of Salem Village's meeting house. She tugged on her ratty apron and adjusted her stained collar, the stale smell of pipe tobacco smoke wafting from each movement she made. Her past miserable life played before her. Her father's suicide, the resulting loss of her inheritance due to a stepfather's greed, her first husband's death that left her mired in debt, and her present husband, who had watched as she begged for food and shelter throughout Salem Village. She felt the eyes of the self-righteous gathering of wealthy Salem merchants behind her, and it took all she could to not turn and lash out at all of them. As the depositions against Sarah Good were read out, alleging each spectral attack against the afflicted, parentheses, that continued even after her imprisonment, the demise of Samuel and Mary Abbey's 17 head of cattle, as well as sheep and hogs after the Abbeys kicked the goods out of their home, and other various vagrancies, the afflicted girls did what had become the backdrop of the proceedings. They howled, wraithed, writhed, and even produced a real prop. During the trial, one of the afflicted screamed out that Sarah Good had just stabbed her in the breast with a knife. She had thrust it so hard that the blade broke. Triumphantly, the girl held up a broken piece of knife blade. As the gathering of jurymen, magistrates, and spectators looked on aghast, a young man stood up and made a startling accusation. He told the room that the blade had come from his knife that had broken the day before in front of the very girl claiming she had just been stabbed. Furthermore, he had discarded the broken piece in her presence. He held up the broken knife, and the court compared the blade to it. It fit exactly. Shockingly, at a moment when the testimony of some of these afflicted witnesses should have been brought sharply into question, the magistrates only admonished the girl to stick to the facts and continued on with the trial as if nothing had happened. This was just one more question at this point as to what mission these trials were on. The men were ignoring admonitions from ministers and brushing away actual evidence of fakery to continue on with the trials that were becoming increasingly unpopular. Had they decided to admit that they had been wrong was too much to bear upon their respected stations in the colony? Would the blood of Bridget Bishop sign their removal from their exalted stations? Reverend Samuel Paris, taking the opportunity to place the stigma elsewhere concerning his home as the original compass point of the outbreak, reaffirmed his complaint sworn out on May 23rd to Hawthorne and Corwin. He, along with Thomas Putnam Jr. and Ezekiel Cheever, had witnessed the sufferings of Betty Paris and Abigail Williams on March 1st during the first examination of Sarah Good. They reminded the court that Tituba's, of Tatuba's accusations, parentheses, after admitting to witchcraft herself, and parentheses, that Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne had hurt the children and ridden with her upon a pole through the night sky to join the devil's Sabbaths. Other indictments were for attacking Elizabeth Hubbard, Ann Putnam Jr., and Sarah Bibber. Little Dorcas Good's confession was also read out. The woman's own child had claimed Sarah Good was a witch. Sarah was found guilty on the charges of witchcraft, a verdict that surprised only a few. She had been the scourge of Salem Village, hounding the hardworking people for scraps of food and a place to stay the night. Most had helped her out of pity for the dirty-faced child she dragged about with her. Sarah was taken back to Salem Jail, where she had begun her journey of hell in March. She sucked on her foul pipe and undoubtedly thought of Bridget Bishop. Bishop had been found guilty, and they had hanged her. Susanna Martin's Trial 
On June 29th, Susanna Martin was brought before the court of Oyer and Terminer. After Sarah Good's trial the day before, evidence had been heard concerning Tituba. It was likely a reconstruction of her examination on March 1st. No record of her trial is extant. She was probably sent to Salem jail, where she may have been kept separated from the other accused witches as ordered during her transport from Boston to Salem Town for the trials. Susanna Martin was a 71-year-old matron from Amesbury, Massachusetts. She had been associated with witchcraft for over 30 years, narrowly skating out of the noose more than once. Tales of her audacious behavior had been town gossip for ages, each story more brazen than the next. Diodat Lawson had made the trip from Boston to witness the trials that day. Even he, after watching the afflicted's antics on many occasions, was horrified at the, at the convulsions greeting Martin's arrival. The girls seemed to be twisted into contortions that threatened to pop their arms from their shoulder sockets. One of them threw up blood. It was so startling that someone actually dipped his finger into it to make sure it was not fake. It was not faked. It was real blood. The depositions read against Martin were lengthy and hard to believe. Her neighbors from Amesbury had accused her of everything from drowning their cattle to pitching cats at them from her second-story window to chew at their throats. Sarah Atkinson's of Newberry took it a step further, accusing Martin of practically walking on water. Testimony of Sarah Atkinson versus Susanna Martin. June 29, 1692. Sarah Atkinson, aged 48 years or thereabouts, testified that sometime in the spring of the year about 18 years since Susanna Martin came into our house at Newbury from Amesbury, an extraordinary dirty season, when when it was not fit for any, I don't know what people are his son, to travel. She then came on foot. When she came into our house, I asked her whether she came from Amesbury. A thought, she said. She did. I asked how she could come in this time afoot and bid my children make way for her to come to the fire to dry herself. She replied she was as dry as I was and turned her coats on side. And I could not perceive, I misperceived, that the sole of her shows were wet. I was startled at it, that she should come so dry, and told her that I should have been wet up to, that I should have been wet up to my knees if I should have come so far on foot. She replied that she she scorned to have a dribbled tail. Told you. Oh, I see. Parentheses. Scorn to have a drag a, a draggled tail, meaning the tail of her dress becoming soiled. Got it. See? <laughs> Susanna Martin had traveled on an especially foul day when the rain had made the rutted roads almost impassable. Yet upon arriving at her friend's home, she was completely dry. Not even the soles of her feet were wet. The implication was either she walked above the muddy terrain or flew. The rest of the depositions were from early May when Susanna Martin was first examined. The usual complaints of spectral attacks, pinching, choking, etc., were read aloud to the jury. Even Samuel Paris had put forth a complaint against Martin on behalf of his niece and others. Here's the deposition of Samuel Paris. You gotta love this stuff, you guys. Nathaniel Ingersoll and Thomas Putnam versus Susanna Martin, May 2nd, 1692. The deposition of Sam Paris, aged about 39 years, and Nathaniel Ingersoll, aged about 50 and 8 years, 
And also, Thomas Putnam, aged about 40 years, old of Salem, testified and stated that Abigail Williams, Mercy Lewis, Mary Walcott, Susanna Shelley, and John Indian were much afflicted at the, at the examination of Susanna Martin of Almsbury. Widow before the honor magistrates, the two May 1692, and that Goody Bibber, who before had not accused her, and some other of the afflicted then, and there testified that there was a black man whispering in her ear, and also that the said Gibber, uh, said Bibber, <laughs> I'm sorry, the said Bibber, Abigail Williams, and Mary Walcott and John Indian could not come near, said Martin, when upon trial they were ordered by the magistrates to attempt it, and their agonies and tortures they charged, said Martin, as a cause of, and also we afflicted then, and there testified that there was a black man whispering in her ear, and also, oh, I'm sorry, see, it'll jump like this, and also we further saw, it's a mess tonight, man, that, that when she said Martin bit her lips, they were bitten, and when the afflicted were ordered to go towards her, they were knocked down. Martin's inquest notes were read out. They included her obvious disdain for proceedings and the girl's afflictions. The magistrates reprimanded her for laughing at the obvious torment of the girls. They reread her comments from her earlier questioning. Quote, well, may I laugh at such folly? What do you think ails them? Hawthorne had asked her. Susan, Susanna shrugged, obviously unimpressed by the whole performance. Quote, I don't desire to spend my judgment on it, she said, offhandedly. Frustrated, Hawthorne had pushed. Don't you think they are bewitched? Susanna, no, I do not think they are. She spat. If they be dealing with the black arts, you may, you may know as well as I. End quote. Her irreverence only fueled the hysteria from the girls. The magistrates ordered her hand to be placed on the afflicted persons. The touch test was administered, and the girls calmed. This seemed to amuse Martin even more. Susanna managed to hit one solid stroke against the myriad accusations of her specter visiting the girls. Quote, He that appeared in the shape of Samuel, a glorified saint, may appear in anyone's shape. Unquote. This biblical reference to the witch of Endor was a powerful move. The pawn had pushed back a square in the devil's board game that the witch of Endor had caused the shape of Samuel to appear before Saul, may have caused the magistrates to pause. She had used the Bible in her defense, and used it against spectral evidence. After a moment's pause, they moved on. Her biblical reference was all but a sniffle to be ignored. Like Bridget Bishop, she was accused of entering the windows of unsuspecting men at night and climbing into bed with them. Others accused her of taking, an taking on amazing shapes, including a marvelous light about the bigness of a half bushel. One witness, one witnessed her melt into an empty space, only to emerge as a flock of birds that pecked and pinched. She had appeared as a cat and carried men away to feast and frolic with the devil. The haughty Martin was found guilty and taken around the corner to Salem jail to sit in the fumes of Sarah Good's pipe. Sarah Wiles' trial. The trial of Sarah Wiles that day received scant mention. The depositions had been gathered since her earlier examination. April 22nd. Even the testimony of Reverend John Hale of Beverly was put forth before the jury. It was entered in the court files July 2nd. A few days after the trial. Testimony of Reverend John Hale versus Sarah Wiles. July 2nd, 1692. I, John Hale of Beverly, 
age 56, being summoned to appear and give evidence against Sarah Wiles of Topsfield, of Topsfield July 2nd, 1692. Testified that about 15 or 16 years ago, came to my house, the wife of John Herrick of Beverly, with an aged woman she said was her mother. Goody Reddington of Topsfield come to me for counsel, being in trouble of spirit. When the said Reddington opened her griefs to me, this, this was one that she was assaulted by witchcraft, that Goody Wiles, her neighbor, be, bewitched her and afflicted her many times grievously, telling me particular stories how and when she troubled her, which I have forgotten. She said also that a son-in-law of said Wiles did come and visit her. She called him an honest young man named John, as I take it, and did pity her, and said Reddington signifying to her that he believed his mother Wiles was a witch and told her stories of his mother. I also understood by them that this goody Wiles was mother-in-law to a youth named, as I take it, Jonathan Wiles, who about 20 years ago or more did act or was acted very strangely, and so much that I was invited to join with Mr. Cobbett and others at Ipswich to advise and pray for the said youth, whom some thought to counterfeit, others to be possessed by the devil. But I remember Mr. Cobbett thought he was under obsession from the, of the devil. Goody Reddington's discourse hath caused me to have further thoughts of the said youth's case, where he were not, whether he were not bewitched. Obviously, the words of a respected clergyman carried a lot of weight. Sarah Wiles was sent to death by hanging and led from the courtroom. Elizabeth Howe's trial. Elizabeth Howe's trial was held on June 30th, 1692. The 50-year-old yeah, carried the distinction of Rebecca Nurse's sister-in-law, also from Topsfield. According to ignorant inhabitants, the nurse genealogy, Sarah Wiles, whoops, they jumped again on me. The nurse genealogy chart must have been filled with cauldrons and broomsticks. Howe's main accusers were a family from the neighboring town of Ipswich. The Pearly family accused Elizabeth Howe of afflicting their 10-year-old daughter until she was down to skin and bones. Reverend Samuel Phillips and Edward Payson, ministers of Raleigh, did what Cotton Mather had recommended before. They took Elizabeth Howe to face the little girl. Did I hurt you? asked Goody Howe, taking the child's hand in her own. No, never, said the little girl. If I did complain of you in my fits, I, I knew not that I did so. The interview was conducted outside of Pearlie's house. The little girl's brother, listening through a window, hissed at his sister. Say Goody Howe is a witch. Say she is a witch. The little girl refused to say the lady whose hand she was holding was a witch. Reverends Phillips and Payson made note of it and came away believing the charges were nothing more than that born of gossip or some misunderstanding. They put forth a deposition saying so before the magistrates. Reverend Samuel Willard was of the same mind and said so. The girls, feeling invincible, suddenly cried out against the reverend whose views on afflicted antics were no secret. To the shock of the magistrates and all gathered, the girls accused him of witchcraft. They had set their cap too high. Samuel Willard had been the president of Harvard, fulfilling increased Mather's role, while Mather was in England lobbying for a new charter. He was a significant figure in Boston. The girls may have felt that if Reverend George Burroughs was fair game and, and sat in prison at this moment on the charges of witchcraft, why not go for a clergyman who was proving to be problematic? 
it was proven to be prob problematic. It backfired. There will be no more of that, one of the judges sternly admonished. You are mistaken. As a hush fell over the courtroom, perhaps doubts began to form as to the validity of the afflicted's charges against any hang on, against any of the witches. Another magistrate jumped in, tempting his words in a more consoling tone. He suggested the girls must have mistaken Reverend Willard for Constable John Willard, who was even now sitting in prison awaiting his trial on witchcraft charges. All eyes swung toward the girls, who swallowed hard beneath the scrutiny. Yes, that must be it. They got the wrong Willard. While, while the rescue line tossed the accusing girl, mollified the crowd for the moment. Had it satisfied them? The judge couldn't confirm the afflicted's accusations one minute and tossed them out the next. Either witchcraft was real or it wasn't. You can't draw the line when someone of distinction is called into question. Unlike the examinations from early March, when a legal court had not been in charge, the Salem witch trials were finding themselves in murky water. It was becoming harder to sleep well at night, and not just from attacking specters. Elizabeth Howe was found guilty. Her life of hardship would soon be over. Her husband James, whom she had married at 23, had been stricken with blindness seven years prior. She was left with six children, all the chores that came with running a farm. Her father had a large estate, of which she was in line to inherit. She would not see that day. Many of her friends and family traveled from Topsfield to vouch for her. Her blind husband never forgot her during her imprisonment. Led by their daughters, Mary and Abigail, he traveled the distance from Topsfield twice weekly to whichever jail his beloved wife was being held. Despite the expense of the trips, he came with food, drink, and clean linen. Her husband's 94-year-old father testified that Elizabeth is very dutiful, careful, loving, obedient, and kind, tenderly leading her husband about by the hand in his wand of eyesight. It was the other depositions accusing Howe of witchcraft that overrode the many pleadings on her behalf. Accused of poisoning an apple, ruining cider and beer, causing the sickness and death of cattle, and even of bewitching one good wife Sherwin to death, she sank beneath the testimonies. Her last words to the court, as they urged her to confess, were, If it was the last moment I was to live, God knows I am innocent of anything in this nature. The magistrates had set their own course, and it was obvious they would not deviate from it. Only one accused witch threw them, Rebecca Nurse. Chapter 30, Rebecca Nurse and Gallows Hill The trial of Rebecca Nurse took place on June 29th. The Nurse family had been vigorously campaigning for her innocence since early May. No less than 39 signatures appeared on a petition testifying to Rebecca's impeccable reputation. The harshest thing said about her was a rare squabble with a neighbor. Yet this woman stood before the magistrates that sultry Wednesday morning accused by Ann Putnam Sr. of murdering six children who had appeared before Putnam in their wedding sheets, winding sheets, and of the death of the husband of one Sarah Holton. Three years earlier, Sarah Holton's husband Benjamin had gotten into an altercation with Rebecca when his hogs were once again found routing up her garden. According to Sarah, Rebecca stormed into their home, railing and scolding, threatening to have her son shoot the pigs. Sarah stated that even though her husband had handled the verbal attack with calm and decorum, his troubles had just begun. 
Shortly after the altercation, Sarah claimed her husband began to suffer stomach pain, choking fits, and even blindness. This evidence, heard now in court as an indication of witchcraft, was refuted by several sources in support of Rebecca Nurse. Nathaniel and Hannah Ingersoll said, although it was true Holden had died while suffering violent convulsions, no one at the time said anything about witchcraft. Oddly, John Putnam Sr., who had voiced suspicions of Rebecca earlier, now stated that when their son-in-law, John Fuller, and daughter Rebecca Shepherd had died during bouts with fever, witchcraft was never mentioned. Salem Town had been dealing with a plague of smallpox at the time of the witchcraft outbreak, and fevers born of a variola virus, born of a variola virus ravaged many homes across the country. It was just another strange, another strange coincidence of the trials that one Putnam was condemning Rebecca Nurse, while another tossed a backhanded vote in her favor. Rebecca was facing four indictments for witchcraft credited to her during her March 24th examination. She was accused of attacking Ann Putnam Jr., Mary Walcott, Betty Hubbard, and Abigail Williams. Strangely, Ann Putnam Sr.'s name was not among those noted. According to Ann Sr., Nurse Specter had come into her bedchamber on several occasions, showing her the bodies of murdered children and even debating scripture verses. She had been choked and frozen in place by the menacing spirit. Rebecca's trial was unprecedented in the number of people who came forward, not just to attest to her pious character, but to cast doubt on the afflicted. The tide had definitely turned against the girls, at least in the court of public opinion. James Kettle stated that Betty Hubbard had told him several untruths during a Sabbath in late May. More disturbing was Joseph Hutchinson Sr.'s retelling of a conversation he had with Abigail Williams. Abigail had been describing not one, but two different books the devil had offered for her signature. They were both red as blood, Abigail said, which the black man repeatedly pushed towards her. Hutchison testified, I asked her if she was not afraid to see the devil. She said at first she was and did go from him, but now she was not afraid, but could talk with him as well as she could with me. If an accused witch had said the words attributed to Abigail's boasting, it would have been a crystal clear indication that the person was on easy terms with the devil, and probably in alliance with him. Yet, Abigail Williams sat unscathed and unexamined. The attacks on the girl's veracity continued. Former employers of Mercy Lewis testified that she had been known to tell untruths. Robert Moulton went on a record saying, when, when, went on record, it's that kind of name, saying how Susanna Sheldon contradicted herself when she told different stories about how she traversed a stone wall. First, she said, the witches hailed her upon her belly. I think it's hailed, H-A-L-L-E-D. Hauled her upon her belly through the yard like a snack and hauled her over the stone wall. Oh, they must have literally hauled her. I get it. Her next version was much tamer. She stated that she came over the stone wall herself. Sheldon also claimed that she rid upon a pole to Boston. She rode upon a pole to Boston. And said, and she said the devil carried the pool. Oh, the devil, D-I-V-E-L. See, and, and she said the devil carried the pool. Got it. Parentheses. These testimonies were in written dispositions, de depositions, and the spelling is believed to be that of the one reporting the events, or taken down by a scribe. End of end of quotes, or end of parentheses. It is of interest that here again we have one of the accusers putting herself in a position that on the flip side was condemning others. 
Tatuba testified she rode upon a pole, as did others. These were confessed witches. Yet, here we have Susanna Sheldon stating she had flown upon one and had just filed away as the poor child being spirited away by the devil. Sarah Bibber, who had been an outspoken opponent of Rebecca Nurse, came under fire next. Nurse's family have collected depositions against some of the accusers. Two of Bibber's neighbors stated that Sarah was un unruly turbulent. It was unruly turbulent who was double-tongued and could fall into fits as often as she pleased. Perhaps the most damning re refutation of the afflicted's auth authenticity came from Rebecca Nurse's daughter, who had come to the trial along with many other of the matriarch's family. They watched in horror as the girls ramped up their performances. Even the jury and the magistrates were taken aback at the spectacle before them. Sarah Bibber suddenly screamed out that Rebecca Nurse had just stuck pins into her knees, and she showed the pins protruding through her dress to prove it. Sarah Nurse, who had been watching the role of afflicted persons carefully throughout the trial, jumped up and declared, I saw Goody Bibber pull pins out of her, clo out of her clothes and held them between her fingers and clasped her hands around her knees, and then she cried out and said, Goody Nurse pinned her. This I can testify. As to the witch marks found on Rebecca's body, two of her daughters, Rebecca Preston and Mary Tarbell, said that their mother had for many years dealt with the infirmity the midwives had found suspicious. It should be mentioned here that the nurse family was the only family of the accused witches that gathered documented testimony against the accusers, as well as going door to door and field to field to accrue 39 signatures in her favor. They are also the only family to ask Judge Stephen Sewell to see copies of the court trial records. Several factors assaulted the jury men's deliberation as they came to terms with what they had witnessed that day. They looked at the frail form of Rebecca Nurse standing unsteadily before them, a confused look in her eyes, as though she could not comprehend what was happening to her. She seemed so meek and humble. They no doubt had heard of the admonitions of the several, of the several ministers as to the weight that should be given to spectral evidence and condemning those of unblemished reputations. Lastly, they had just heard testimonies against the afflicted, casting doubt on the veracity, a first of that magnitude. The jury left the room and went off to deliberate. The strain amongst the nurse family must have been formidable. Were they seeing their beloved mother and grandmother for the last time before this court of, mad of madmen hanged her? Thomas Fisk, foreman of the jury, led the group of men back to the court, where the room waited in silence like a breath held in place. All eyes were on him as he read the verdict. Not guilty. Several of the magistrates looked at each other in surprise. Had he really said not guilty? After only a stunned moment of silence, the courtroom erupted in chaos. The girls shrieked out in unison so loudly that all were stunned. They fell into contortions so bizarre that all thought they would never recover. It was eerily reminiscent of the backlash witnessed when Mary Etsy, Rebecca's sister, was released. The court ordered a temporary adjournment, a deeply needed reprieve from the ear-splitting chaos inside the main room. The nurse family may have grasped each other in happiness, only to feel a restless, a restless repetition that it could all be taken away. Rebecca had a chance to rest. Due to her deafness and day's condition, she appeared not to understand the drama playing out around her. She sank into a chair. Outside the hearing of the anxious crowd, two of the judges voiced their displeasure at the jury's verdict. One just judge declaring, based on the girl's torments in the courtroom, he would try Rebecca Nurse anew. 
Chief Justice William Stoughton took a steady breath and fixed his gaze upon the jury, who sat in adjournment as well, coming to rest on Thomas Fisk. In an authoritative yet measured tone, he told Fisk, I will not impose on the jury, but I must ask you if you considered one statement made by the prisoner. When Deliverance Hobbs was brought into court to testify, the prisoner, turning her head to her, said, What did you bring? What do you bring her? She is one of us. That statement has been made during Rebecca's examination in May. Many of the many of the jurymen were not even present during the questioning, as were some of the newer judges absent. Thomas Fisk stammered. He was not certain as to what Judge Stanton was referring to. Fisk finally admitted he had forgotten the event and asked if he could question Rebecca directly as to her meaning of the statement in question. The other jurors followed him. Before he could even enter the courtroom, he could hear the wailing beginning anew from the bench of afflicted persons. It was unnerving, to say the least. He found Rebecca sitting in her almost trance-like condition, perhaps grateful for the first time in her life that she could barely hear the cacophony of voices accusing her of such heinous crimes. She lifted her eyes to the man before her and strained to hear him over the noise. Fisk repeated her statement from her earlier examination when she called Hobbs one of us and asked her to explain her meaning. Rebecca did not know this man. She looked at him with uncertainty, a dull, foreign absence of comprehension behind her gaze. The noise in the room was deafening. Was he saying something to her? She was so tired. Fisk repeated the question, and Rebecca said nothing. He looked about him for some sign of what he was to do next. No one came to his aid. He returned to the private room, a den of howling behind him, and reported that his query had been met with silence. The jury now had the dilemma on their hands. What did that silence mean? What if she was innocent? Hadn't she come to her defense and answer him? The statement she had given that deliverance Hobbs is one of us could mean two different things. That Hobbs was a witch like herself, or simply that Hobbs was a prisoner under suspicion of witchcraft like herself. And why bring her in as a witness? The evident torment continuing from the courtroom next door may have swayed the jury. Thomas Fisk admitted that these words, or lack thereof, were to be a principal evidence against her. After all, this woman had been accused by more than one of attending the devil's feast, acting as deacon to his Sabbath. Within the hearing of the collected family of Rebecca Nurse, Thomas Fix declared that after careful deliberation, they were retracting their verdict. Beneath the pleased gaze of the pleased gaze of Chief Justice Stoughton, Fix declared Rebecca Nurse guilty of witchcraft and sentenced to hang. It was reported that Rebecca collapsed after the trial. Whatever she was carried, whatever she was carried around, whether she was carried around the corner, corner of the jail where she finally felt her strength leave her within the foul prison room is not clear. She was informed, probably by her family, what exactly had just happened in the courtroom. It was explained to her that her failure to answer fixed questions concerning her earlier statement at her examination had been the deciding factor in changing her verdict to guilty. Rebecca, the gravity of her mischance to defend herself, blurted out she had not heard him, had heard him, being something hard of hearing and full of grief. She, too late, told her audience that she intended no other ways than as they were prisoners with us, and therefore did then and yet do judge the not legal evidence against their fellow prisoners. Her family hastened to comfort her, assuring her they were not finished fighting for her. Indeed, they pulled together all their forces, they went to Fisk and asked him what exactly had occurred to change the verdict. They presented Rebecca's statement they had just obtained 
explaining why she hadn't answered Fick's question in court, and they obtained copies of the court documents from Stephen Sewell. They took their information to the top, the office of Governor William Phipps. After hearing them out and taking a short time to review the information, he ordered a reprieve for Rebecca Nurse, away from the howling of the girls and probably weighing the fact that the King of England was watching him in his new governing role. He did what he thought was fair. Elated, the nurse family ran to inform their mother that she was coming home. Robert Califf recorded that upon hearing of the reprieve, the accusers re renewed their dismal outcries against her, and some Salem gentlemen then persuaded him to rescind it. Chief Justice Stoughton was from Dorsetshire. Who were the Salem gentlemen that pressured the governor to think again? Hawthorne? Corwin? It, is, it has haunted scholars and this author. Why these educated men would overlook the obvious lies employees utilized by the afflicted girls and condemned church covenant members to the gallows. Over and over, they had ignored the evidence that the afflicted persons were faking their attacks and that 90% of the evidence offered was of a spectral variety that could not be scientifically refuted. These magistrates and members of the council may have felt that the troubles they were now embroiled in with the Indian attacks and disputes with the French in Canada were evidence the devil was raging his own war with Massachusetts. The failed attempts to save the villagers of Maine lay on their doorstep. Many of that state's refugees huddled in broken homes throughout the Salem area. Is, is it not better to blame the devil and his witches for the slaughter and sabotage of their efforts? Here was a scapegoat on which they could lay their ineffectiveness. Rebecca Nurse had witnessed her last hope of salvation in more ways than one. Not satisfied to just condemn her to death, the congregation of the First Church of Salem, of which she was still listed as a member, decided to excommunicate her. She had been found guilty of aligning herself with the devil. It fell to, Rev it fell to Reverend Nicholas Noyes to pronounce her sentence before a packed room on Sunday, July 3rd. Unable to walk, Rebecca was strapped to a chair and carried from Salem Jail into the Sabbath meeting. Broken and bent, she bowed her head in defeat. Through the muffled sounds that managed to penetrate her ears, she listed in numb disbelief as noise, read off his list of sins and offenses. Before the congregation that had once been her peers, he finally announced on behalf of the entire church that she was unclean and unworthy to continue to hold the ordinances to which she had once been privy. They had stripped her of her home as they pulled her from her bed and threw her into jail. They had stripped her of her decency as they disrobed her and probed her nakedness. They had stripped her of her good reputation. And now, harder to bear than the threat of death, they had taken her beloved covenants from her and declared her unworthy. The words she first uttered when she was told by Peter Cloyce as she lay ill in her bed that the girls had cried out against her came back to torment her, depressed mind. As to this thing I am innocent as a child unborn, she had pleaded, but surely what sin hath God found in me unrepented of that? He could lay down such an affliction on me in my old age. Samuel Paris witnessed the trial of Rebecca Nurse. Although a member of the First Church of Salem, she had been his parishioner for three years, as the Salem Village Meeting House was much closer to her home. He would have known of her deafness and righteous character, yet he did nothing. He even bore witness against her in, in his depositions on behalf of the afflicted girls. Deposition of Samuel Paris, Nathaniel Ingersoll, and Thomas Putnam versus Rebecca Nurse. June 29, 1692. 
The deposition of Sam Paris, aged about 39 years, Nathaniel Ingersoll, aged about 50 and 8 years, and Thomas Putnam, aged about 40 years, old of Salem, testifieth and saith that Anne Putnam Sr. and her daughter Anne and Mary Walcott and Abigail Williams were several times grievously tortured at the examination of Rebecca Nurse, wife to Francis Nurse of Salem before the honored magistrates, the 24 March 1691 and 2, and particularly that when her hands were at liberty, some of the afflicted were pinched, and upon the motion of her head and fingers, some of them were tortured, and further, that some of the afflicted then and there affirmed that they saw a black man whispering in her ear, and that they saw birds fluttering about her. Nathaniel Ingersoll bore witness to what he had seen, but past documents show he and his family were not happy with the witchcraft madness. His wife Hannah had scolded the girls in the past for their antics, and his daughter had testified to their lies. Samuel Paris posted a second disposition, deposition against Rebecca, always with the Putnam's name beside his own. Thomas Putnam Jr. was Paris's biggest supporter and instrumental in landing him the office of Salem Village's minister. Gallows Hill Tuesday, July 19, 1692, Sheriff George Corwin gave the final orders to the guards flanking the wooden cart with oversized wheels. The crowds had gathered as a blistering sun rose towards its new zenith. There was almost a feeling of holiday as housewives left their chores and farmers hurried to flop their pigs. Children, some too small to understand the gravity of the day, looked about at the expectant faces and wondered what the festivities were for. Inside the jail, Rebecca Nurse was lifted from the floor and her wrist tied. She may have been carried to the cart. Susanna Martin, Elizabeth Howe, Sarah Good, and Sarah Wiles were likewise bound and lifted on the cart. No record remains to testify of their mood as they looked out at the crowd who had come to witness their deaths. And the abrasive tongues of some of the prisoners lashed out. Their remarks were not taken down as the cart began to sojourn. Among the same route that Bridget Bishop had been transported, the five rode over ruts so deep it threatened to throw them from the cart. They jerked along the they jerked along the crowd, keeping pace. They jerked along the crowd, keeping pace. Some jeered, some followed in sickened silence. Many had chosen to stay away. This was not to, to them the shining city on the hill. They had escaped England and raced. There was this was hell riding through their streets in a creaking wagon. The nooses were slung over a thick tree bough, whether one at a time or all five at once. As a later execution would prove, eight had been hung from the same limb, so it is not unreasonable to suppose there were five nooses. Reverend Nicholas Noyes, who had passed the sentence of excommunication upon Rebecca Nurse less than three weeks ago, gave the prisoners one last chance to save their immortal souls by confessing the witchcraft. It would do nothing to keep them from the noose, but it might allow them some redemption in the next world. Sarah Good, in her final defiance, snapped back at Noyes that she was not a witch. He chided her, saying he knew she was a witch. Fury spilling from her, she yelled, You're a liar. I am no more a witch than you are a wizard, and if you take my life, God will give you blood to drink. This may have been the only prophetic statement uttered by the woman. Nicholas Noyes did, indeed, die years later with his mouth filled with blood. He had hemorrhaged to death. The five were hanged. The five were hanged. All the efforts of the nurse, all the efforts of the nurse family had met with futility. The hopes that their mother would return to her home and take up her apron and disappeared with the drop of a rope. 
The ravine at the edge of the hanging site made an easy burial place as it was a makeshift grave where bodies could be tossed and some rocks and dirt thrown over them. According to Mary Lynn K. Roach's excellent book, The Salem Wish Trials, a day-to-day chronicle of a community under siege, Rebecca's body did not lay in that neglected sepulcher for long. Quote, By family tradition, the nurses waited for darkness. Sunset was about a quarter after seven, then rode up the North River to the, to the bend by the ledge and eschewed Rebecca's body. According to another tradition, Caleb Buffum, a distant relative, noticed this effort from his home nearby and helped carry the remains to the shore. From there, a small craft could slip downstream, past town on the midnight on the midnight high tide, the north up the estuary to Crane River, and along its narrowing length to the nurse's land, where they buried her privately on home ground. A loving memorial stands witness today to the Rebecca Nurse Homestead in Danvers, Massachusetts, a permanent testament that this pious matriarch brought home to rest. That's it. That's all we're reading today. Wow, that was something, wasn't it? That was that was something. Okay, guys. Well, that's it for today, and um, I'll start a new chapter. Uh, thank you for coming, and thank you for listening. And man, this book is an eye—it's an eye opener. I—I I mean, I knew about the witch trials, but I didn't know about the witch trials. If that makes any sense, I know now. Rebecca's an excellent detail person. She goes into a lot of detail. Okay. Well, I will see you guys tomorrow, six thirty p.m. Pacific, with the, with. Uh, Psychologist Donna Anderson. We're going to be talking about different, you know, different psychological traits that people have. So that'll be tomorrow's show, and I will see you at 6:30 tomorrow. Have a great evening. Bye. <laughs>